0: Welcome to Lakewood's Sermon Podcast. We're glad you're here, and we'd like to invite you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 online at lakewoodok.com slash live, or we'd also love to see you in person at our campus in McAllister. Good morning. You're here. Congratulations. <laughs> oh, let's take a second. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we we, we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We believe that you've gone to incredible lengths, that we can have a security of our salvation. Father, we believe that you give us an identity that's bigger than we are on our own. But Father, today I ask that you would remind us of that. Please show us who you are, And who we are in you. Or please overcome uh, the shortcomings of the one that's trying to communicate this today. Father, I ask that your spirit would be the one that communicates your word today. God, thank you for the opportunity. We love you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. I hope you're all doing well. I hope... That everybody and your families are staying well. You guys have been in our prayers uh, so much over the past uh, days, months, weeks, feels like multiple years uh, that we've been going through this. But really, uh, I, I'm excited that today you're here, whether you're with us in person or online, because today's a pretty fun day at Lakewood. Today we get to start a new series. And I, I always like starting a new series. For me, it's kind of like whenever you start a new book. Um, You know, you, you, you open the first page, and you don't even know what's coming after all the other pages, but you're starting on something new, and you're learning different things. Or maybe you're just being entertained in a different way, if it's like a novel or something like that, but it's something new, and we like new beginnings. That's one of the reasons why we were so excited about switching from 2020 to 2021, is that we were really desperately hoping for a new beginning. So today we're starting a series called Who You Are. Which means that we're gonna be spending the next four weeks. Well, first I'm gonna say this. Notice that it doesn't say, who are you, with a question mark. It says, who you are, with an understood period. Which means that for the next four weeks, we're gonna be going through a series where we're gonna spend that time telling you who you are, which seems awfully presumptuous. We serve a very creative God who's created us all very differently, but nevertheless, we're going to take the next four weeks and we're going to tell you who you are. Because really, every one of us has a God given identity that's found in Scripture. And so, we're going to take the next four weeks to discover who God says we are, what God says we are, or who God says we are, and what we're supposed to do with that, how we're supposed to take that identity and put it into action. We're going to talk about our identity in Christ, but we're also going to talk about how we approach uh, the world from that identity. We're going to unpack some topics that Jesus talked about the most, and we're going to ask ourselves, based on who God says I am, what do I do with this? So this series is about identity, but it's also about what the Christian life looks like when it accepts and acts on that identity. And so I've got to tell you about the Lion King. You know, that's one of the things. I'm really good at transitions right now. <laughs> Whenever I was seven years old, though, I saw The Lion King in theaters. Um, I'm sorry if that makes you feel either young or old or whatever it is, but that was one of the first memories I had in a theater was when I was seven watching The Lion King. And I, I, I really was excited to see it. I had heard about it, but I get in the theater, and I mean, I'm assuming, I'm hoping everybody's seen it. Show of hands. Everybody seen The Lion King? Okay, so whenever I say this, you're going to know what I'm talking about. There's this moment at the very beginning of the movie. It's really quiet. It's dark. It's almost peaceful. And then out of nowhere, ah, and it's, as a kid, that scared me half to death. I was crawling. I was about to my grandmother, but I was crawling for her because I was like, listen, I don't like this. It scared me. But really what went on from that was a movie that became one of my favorites. Um, but it was also a movie that brought the uh, realization of like, you know, that's the first time in my life I remember actually understanding what death was uh, because you see that happen in the movie. But there's this one scene that I want to talk to you about. See, because Simba's father dies, and if you haven't seen it, sorry for the spoiler alert, but Simba's father dies, and Simba believes that it is his fault, and so he runs, and he spends most of the movie just really running from the mistakes of his past. And there's this one incredible scene in the movie where Simba runs out into this field and he's looking at his father up in the clouds and his father says this to him. He says, you have forgotten who you are and so have forgotten me. You are more than what you've become. Remember who you are. You are my son. You are the one true king. Remember who you are. Now, I get it. That's an that's animated Disney movie we're talking about. It's not scripture. But the theme of identity... And remembering. Those are themes that are very uh, powerful in Scripture, and they're all over the place. In fact, in Scripture, the Israelites went to great lengths to make sure that as a people, they remembered their identity as the people of God. See, because throughout the entire Old Testament, God builds this story through which he would bring about the salvation of the world. We see it from the very beginning. And God continues to bring his people along the story. But the problem is it's not a short story. This thing's an epic. And so uh, this thing spanned for generations. And so as they go there um, are many times as they're going along through scripture, there are many times where God stops and says, listen, you need to remember who you are. You need to remember what I'm doing. You need to remember what I've done and what I'm calling you to. And one of the ways he did that was God had his people build altars. And so in scripture, uh, well, we, can, we can talk about it. In Genesis twelve seven. the Lord appears to Abram and says, to your offspring, I'm going to give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. The next one uh, we see uh, from Jacob in Genesis 35. It says, And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now those are moments that happened, but what they would do is when they would have an encounter with the Lord, they would build an altar. It was a place where they could worship the Lord, but it also served as a place for them to remember what God did there. It was a practice for them that when God showed up, they marked the occasion. And they did this by placing altars to show that this is where God did something. This is where God spoke. This is where God made a promise. This is where God directed us. This is where God did amazing things. And they wanted to show them that this is where this happened because the God who provides for us here will continue to provide for us on the path. And they can look and they can see in their history all these different places that prove that they serve a God who provides, and so that the God that's providing for us isn't done with us. We also see something else that God did later on. Whenever they go through Egypt and they go through the Exodus and they finally get set up in the Promised Land, God sets up for them, well, it was right before that. But God sets up for them these feasts that are to be observed over all of the years. Several different feasts. The most notable of these, the one that we would know the most, is the feast of the Passover. This was a feast that was specific to the Jews that they would remember when the angel of the Lord passed over them during the last plague of their time in Egypt. They had this time of remembering that their God was a God who saw them, who protected them, who, get, who provided for them. And so they had this feast that the sole purpose of which was to remember, but it wasn't the only feast they had. They had tons of feasts throughout the year, each one designed to help them remember a different aspect of how God was providing for them. God did these things because he knew that it would be important for his people to remember that they were God's chosen people and that he had historically provided for them and that he would continue to provide for them. Because like we said, God was not writing a short story. And I, I'll be honest. I so often forget. It's easy in these environments. We're worshiping. We're opening our our. our bibles we're studying scripture together it's easy to remember right now but then when the pressures of life happen we tend to lean on our own understanding we tend to lean on our own provision when we see things falling apart across the world we tend to lean towards our fear instead of realizing that we serve a god who provides who's stronger than we are it's important to remember And God gives us this great example of why in Scripture. We see it in the Israelites. The times that Israel struggles the most are the times when they forget who their Lord is. Judges is a testament to this entire thing, but one specific one in Judges 3.7, it says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherah. I just picked this verse. There's so many like this in the book of Judges. It's the common theme of Judges. It happens over and over again. They forget their Lord and they begin to serve other gods, meaning they forget what God has called them to and they begin to lean on their comfort and what they had known before. And it's not an isolated incident. The people of God continually drop the ball. They get in hard situations and instead of stepping into their faith, they lean back on the things they believe will provide comfort and security. And the more I say that over and over again in the head, the more it pierces me. Because I know I do that. But God doesn't walk away. God doesn't leave his people. Instead, he sends help. For the Israelites at this time, the help looked like judges and prophets who came in and through the power of God delivered the Israelites and reminded them of their identity. They were the chosen people of God. They are chosen That there is a plan in which they were major players. And that plan wasn't created by a king or by a president, but a plan that was crafted by the creator of the world. The Israelites' biggest moments of trial came when they forgot their identity, but their biggest moments of success was when they grabbed that identity and put it to use. And in times where we might be tempted to lean on the plans of leaders, It's incredibly important for us to remember who we are. Because there are bigger things happening right now than the United States. There are bigger things happening than our jobs. There are bigger things happening than our opinions, than our families. The story of God is still being told. And nothing is more important So knowing who we are is incredibly important because when we don't have a clear foundation in our identity, we tend to follow the path of least resistance, the one that provides us with the greatest feeling of comfort and security. And really, the life that we are called to live in Jesus makes no sense if our identity is not found in him. Have you looked at some of the claims that Jesus makes, some of the commands that Jesus gives the Christian of what the Christian life is supposed to be like? They make no sense if our identity is not in him. He calls us to do things like loving people who hate us, like in Luke chapter 6, 27. I say to you who hear, hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. My goodness, we need to know that. He says things like intentionally choose the hard path. In Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. He says, choose the hard path. He tells us to sacrifice of ourselves in Matthew chapter 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He tells us to intentionally accept that persecution will be a normal part of our lives. In John 15, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Not a one of those is a position that I would naturally seek. I don't want to be abused. I don't want to choose the harder path. I want the easy path. I don't want to love my enemies and pray for those who abuse me. I want justice. I want revenge. We don't find ourselves in the natural, naturally falling into this path. And they're not positions in which we would really thrive unless we approach it with an understanding of who we are. If I suddenly found myself in a store... And I I saw myself paying $200 for a pair of shoes. One, I would be upset. I don't want to spend that much on a pair of shoes. I don't know how much you spend on shoes, but that's more than I spend on shoes. I would not want to spend that money on shoes, and I wouldn't understand why I would need that. But imagine then um, we fast forward, and now I'm not buying shoes, but I'm buying shorts. And they're really short shorts. They're shorter than I would prefer. And I'm also buying form-fitting shirts, there's let's just say there's a reason why we're kind of baggier things. Form fitting is not a direction I go. I like to tell people I'm in perfect shape. It just happens to be round. But then we fast forward again. And now I'm running down a street and I've got a stitch in my side, and my feet are killing me, my legs are hurting, and I hate what I'm doing, I can't breathe. And it's hard. And none of these actions really makes that much sense if at some point I didn't decide that I was going to be a runner. But if I decide that I'm gonna be a runner and I'm preparing for a race, it makes perfect sense that I have good shoes that will withstand the beating that I'm about to do to my feet. It makes sense that I'll have clothing that helps chafing not become a factor. It makes sense that I would get out and I would work and I would practice and I would train to prepare for the race that's coming. All of those things make sense when it's put into the context that I'm a runner. But outside of the context, it's just silliness. Now, I know running is not an identity. It's a hobby, and for some it's a profession, but they have an understanding of what it takes They're not surprised at the cost of equipment or at the time the training takes because they know that that is the cost of being a runner. And sometimes what we run into in the Christian faith is we never come to a moment where we actually sit down and count the cost of following Jesus. And so we just go our own thing and we add Jesus as an ingredient to our lives. And so then what happens is we're never really able to approach the things that he's called us to be as Christians because we never actually connected to who we are in Christ. We never gave up our identity in favor of the identity that he had crafted for us. And so the road becomes too hard. And like me, many times whenever I've attempted to run, I turn around and I walk home. Back to my comfort. Back to where I can sit on a couch and not have to exercise. I really believe exercise is good, by the way. Just disclaimer, but... Jesus asks us to do some hard things that don't come naturally, things that come at a cost, but too often we're surprised or we're scared at how difficult it's going to be. But what would happen if we looked at the words of Jesus and expected them to be true? What would happen if we stepped into the Christian life with the expectation of both great difficulty and great joy? And please understand the difference between joy and happiness. God never calls us to happiness. He calls us to joy. Happiness is based on our circumstances. Joy is based on, our, on things that are, no longer, are not affected by our circumstances. Joy transcends circumstance. Because if my identity, and I'll say it this way, the only way that we can step onto the road and be sustained is if we understand and accept our identity in Christ. Because if our identity is not set in the foundation of Christ. How can we ever successfully pay the cost of following him? The cost that says that we have to put our old selves to death? Look at 2 Corinthians 5:17. It says, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold the new has come." Sometimes we miss that step and realize that we are called to be new creations. We're called to let down our old self. And we can't do that if we're not defined by Jesus because just like a runner buys equipment and trains with the the understanding that they're a runner, we too act out of the understanding that we are the saved children of God. Our actions come from our identity. We're not trying to do good out of a desire to find our identity in God, but we are acting out of faith because we've been given an identity through God. Which leads to the first point. If you're taking notes with us today, you can do it on the app or on a piece of paper. It says that our actions come from the foundation of our identity, not the other way around. Our actions come from the foundation of our identity. Ephesians 2 8 through 10 says it this way For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not working to gain our salvation. We're not working to gain a faith in Christ or an identity in Christ. We're working because we've been saved. We're working because we've been given an identity in Christ. We've been called His craftsmanship. So if you're having trouble following Jesus today, maybe stop and ask yourself where do you actually find your identity? There's a Danish philosopher, and I'm going to butcher his last name, Soren Kierkegaard. I was pretty close. We're going to leave it there. But he put it this way. He said, Sin is building your identity on anything besides God. Meaning that at the root of who we are, at the foundation level of every single person, there is a Savior. Now, whether you believe in God or not, and I'm, pretty, I'm hoping everybody in here does, but if you don't, come talk to me. I'd love to have that conversation with you. Uh, but whether you believe in God or not, whether you agree with this or not, every single person in the world is relying on a Savior at the deepest part of who they are. There's something in each of us that we're building our identity on, something that we're building our self-esteem on, our hope, our security, something that we are trusting to be our fulfillment, and that thing is Our Savior. We're trusting that to be the thing that saves us, that fulfills us. It could be our professions. It could be the approval of others. It could be the love of a spouse or friend. It could be our family. It could be our looks. That one's me. No, not really. I'm kidding. Um, It could be our intellect. It could be many other things. Everybody looks to something with an attempt to find fulfillment. And too often we take the measure of the day and use that as our metric to see how we're doing. That's how we end up accepting lesser saviors in an attempt to fill that longing. We end up looking to our political ideology or our national identity to be something that God never intended it to be. We end up looking for our jobs to provide us with things that God never intended them to provide us. We look at end up looking at our spouses or significant others and we say, I want them to be what fulfills me. And God never intended that. We're all looking for a savior, but the only way that we can truly thrive in the life that Jesus called us to is if we vacate the throne of our hearts and allow Jesus to step in and accept his lordship. Because it's him, it's in him that we truly find fulfillment. It's in him that we find joy. Not happiness, but joy. It's in him that we find our salvation, our purpose, and the passion and strength to carry on. Because we know who we are and we're inspired to act on that identity. Remembering who we are is incredibly important. There's a great example of this actually in the book of Daniel. I'm going to give a quick history on this. Like the, the people of Israel they eventually get their own kingdom set up. And it goes well for a while, but eventually they start to argue and they split the kingdom into two different kingdoms. And one of those kingdoms gets conquered by Babylon. And so they take their fighting age men and they take them in exile to Babylon. And what they do, in the, and that's where we're going to pick up, is in Daniel chapter one, starting in verse three, we're going to talk about what Babylon did with their identity. It says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate, and of the wine that the king drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Babylon was actually kind of brilliant in the way they did this. What they would do is they would take people into the palace and they would train them for three years. But they wouldn't just train them for three years. They would take away their Hebrew clothes and give them Babylonian clothes. They would take away their Hebrew food and give them Babylonian food. They would take away their Hebrew names and give them Babylonian names. And then they would work on them for three years, teaching them not to to no longer be Hebrews, but to be Babylonians. Their idea was assimilation. That's what they wanted, to assimilate them into their culture. So Daniel and his crew were taken captive by Babylon. And Babylon's first priority is to strip them of their identity and make them Babylonians. And in the midst of the pressure and temptation, these four guys that we just read about decide that they're going to hold on to their identity. They're going to hold on to their identity as the people of God. And so what they do is they say, okay, um, we're not going to eat the king's food because we've been, that, that doesn't really follow our dietary laws. We're not going to do that. And they say, okay, um, we're, also, um, we're not going to bow to your gods and your statues. We bow to the God. And they say, oh yeah, also, we're not going to stop praying to our God. And they hold on to their identity as the people of God, and they follow these things to the point that they're willing to embrace their own deaths. Daniel, this guy... They, they tell him, hey, don't pray anymore. And what Daniel's response is, oh, man, I got to go pray about that. <laughs> Seriously, that's what he does. They say, no more praying. And he goes, okay, hold on. And he goes to his zipper room in his house. He bows down and he begins to pray to God about what's going on to the point that they take him and they throw them into a den of hungry lions. The end of the story is God shuts the mouths of the lions, and it's an incredible thing that happens. But then with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they put up, Nebuchadnezzar puts up this big statue and he says, everybody, at the sound of all these instruments, you're going to bow down and worship the statue. And they say, "Uh, not so much. And so everybody bows down and they stand up. And so they're taken before the king and he says, I'm going to give you another chance. And this is their response. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 17, he says, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So being faced with this death in a fiery furnace, they say to the king, Hey, listen, we serve a God that's bigger than your furnace. We serve a God who can take out all of this stuff. We serve a God who can save us from what you're about to do. But you need to understand this. Even if he doesn't, if we get thrown there and we feel every bit of those flames, we would still not bow down to your gods. We serve a God who is capable, but he doesn't move at our whim. We are under his plan. And I tell you these stories today to say that, yes, they were people of great faith, But really, they were a people who believed wholeheartedly in their identity from God. And when we have a foundation of who we are in God, who he calls us, when we're secure in that, then our actions are no longer obligations of the faith, but instead they become incredible privileges that come from our adopted identity as children of God. So the question we have today is this. Who are you? And really, I don't want to give you my opinion on that. I don't want to tell you who I think you are. What I'd like to do instead is I want to open the Word and show you what God says about you. Who God says you are. The identity that God makes available to us. So we're going to start that by going back to Ephesians chapter 2. We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are the workmanship of God. That word workmanship can actually also be translated to masterpiece. You are the masterpiece of God. You're not a mistake. You were intentionally made for good things. You are his workmanship. Psalm 139 says this You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You are known. We serve a God who knows us intimately. Ephesians 1:7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You are a new creation. You don't have to be a slave to your old life, to your struggles. You're new. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are chosen. Romans 8.15 For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and of children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. You are a child and heir of God. You are royalty. And then in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You're loved. Not just a little. You're loved to the point that God sent a piece of himself in the form of Jesus Christ, his son, to the world, to be sacrificed and punished on your behalf. To pay an incredible price. That's what it says. For God so loved the world that he paid the price for you. And what does that say? It means this, that you were loved, but also that you're worth it. Not because you're intrinsically good. Not because you do such a good job. But really, you're worth it because Jesus looks at you and says, I pay that for you." them and if the worth is in the eye of the beholder he beheld you and called you worthy you're loved and so if I can take us back to that great theologian Mufasa from the Lion King let me say this remember who you are everything important that we do stems from that And everything that tears us down comes from a forgetting of that. Because we so often, or so often we are more than what we have become. So often we spend wasted lives that only seek to provide a level of comfort while we're here for such a short time. Remember who you are. You're the workmanship of God made in his own image. You are known by God. You are forgiven. Maybe you really need to hear that today. You are forgiven. God doesn't look at you and see failure. He looks at you and sees redeemed. He looks at you and sees forgiven. You are a new creation. You don't have to be the way you've been. You are chosen. You are a child of God, and you are loved and called worthy. When our identity is in Christ, our actions really become reactions to his grace, his love, and his calling. But if our foundation is not set firmly on him, we will never survive the path that he has called us to. But instead, we will become believers whose faith is played out only in sitting in a pew on a Sunday morning. And we've been called to much more than that. So if I could leave you with anything today, it's this. Remember who you are. And let your actions flow from that identity. You're not your mistakes. You're not your successes. You're a child of God, the creator of the heavens and earth, and he loves you dearly. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Um, God, I ask that today you would remind us of your love. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would set yourself on each of your people today. And that we would feel your presence. And God, that we would feel what you've, what you think when you look at us. We would feel that love. We would feel. We would feel you calling us worthy. God, please remind us. Over and over and over again. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.